Welcome to Healthy Outcomes, brought to you by Baker Tilly, bringing you the latest trends and hottest topics in healthcare. Baker Tilly is a leading advisory, tax, and assurance firm dedicated to helping healthcare organizations explore ways in which they can win now and anticipate tomorrow. Let's go there. Hi, my name is Mark Ross, and I'm the leader of Baker Tilly's healthcare provider practice. Joining me for today's Healthy Outcomes podcast is Sherry Faber. Sherry is the CEO of 340B Compliance Partners. Welcome, Sherry, and thanks for joining me on today's podcast. Thank you, Mark. I'm so excited to be here. Great. Well, well, Sherry, to kick things off, and actually, let me step back and say, our listeners probably know at this point, the name of your company is 340B Compliance Partners. So the focus of our discussion today is going to be the 340B Drug Pricing Program, which some in our audience may not be all that familiar with, Sherry, but some others may be familiar with. But it's a U.S. federal program created in 1992 that requires drug manufacturers to provide outpatient drugs to eligible healthcare organizations at reduced costs, right? So there's a benefit here to those eligible healthcare providers of participating in the 340B program. And as I have my dialogue here with Sherry today, we're going to peel the onion back quite a bit on the 340B program and get into a number of topics. So Sherry, with that background, can you give our listeners a little more information on your personal background and on 340B compliance partners and the types of services you provide to your client base? Sure. So I'll start with the most relevant piece is that this year marks a great anniversary for me. It makes 30 years that I have been a pharmacist. And of those 30 years, I participated in the 340B program for the last 16 years. And so director of pharmacy for 12 of those years and functioned in very much so on the front lines of the 340B program. So as many of the audience members who actually do know anything about 340B, it is a very limited exposure opportunity sometimes to learn about the program short of just participating and learning from doing. But in 2017, I did create 340B Compliance Partners primarily as a result of feeling like it was difficult to find an organization to come in and do the annual mock audits for us. And again, that was my initial intent. But since that time, we have grown to provide a lot of different services for 340B covered entities. So our company is all pharmacists and pharmacy technicians who serve as the analysts. And we actually go on site, we teach, we do audits, we do everything 340B, except we are not a software company. So really want to stress that we are on the side of the covered entity and help them in any Well, Sherry, first of all, congratulations on that 30-year anniversary. (laughs) Thank you. And 2017, so I'm just curious. So 2017, 18, 19, 20, leading into the pandemic. So about 50% of your business's life at this point has pre-pandemic and maybe about 50%, I'm rounding there when I say 50%, has been in the middle of the pandemic or post-pandemic. Did the pandemic change the way you provide services or change your business at all? It did a little. We had to do quite a bit of remote work. Of course, we're pretty much remote for the most part anyway, but we had to pivot as did HRSA with their audit process and do everything we could remotely. I think it's a little bit different lens doing it that way, but since, you know, we have transitioned back to the live environment, but it definitely impacted a lot of our covered entities in terms of 
qualification in the program and just services that they had to also quickly change how they provided services to the patients during this process. Sure. Well, Sherry, as I mentioned in my opening comments, the program's been around 340B program since 1992. I'm sure there's been plenty of changes between 1992 and today over the last 30 plus years. But can you give a little bit of that history of the 340B program, Sherry? Again, if you assume for a moment that our listeners really don't have much of a background at all in 340B. So how does the program work? How do the providers benefit financially from the program? Sure. So if we focus our attention on hospitals, there are other types of covered entities in the program as it relates to federal grantees. So FQHCs, other grantees with STD clinics, Ryan White programs. But for the hospitals, initially it was the DISH hospitals that were eligible. And then in 2010, there was some new legislation introduced that now allowed critical access hospitals, sole community hospitals, rural referral centers. So more were able to join at that point. But if you think about it in a nutshell, I like to describe it as those entities who have their unfair share of Medicare, Medicaid, and uninsured patients. And this program was intended to help them stretch scarce federal resources and provide more services for their community. And so the way it works, it's an outpatient program only. And so these facilities can purchase drugs at a deep discount. And of course, there are a lot of rules to follow in order to stay in the program. And that being said, there's a lot of oversight that's necessary. But what they can do is utilize a savings piece in the hospitals themselves. So the drugs that they would have purchased anyway for the care of their patient For their outpatients, they are able to obtain those drugs at a less cost. And then they do have a contract pharmacy opportunity that would be a new source of revenue for them to then turn around and reinvest those new sources of revenue into additional equipment, newer equipment, additional services they may not otherwise be able to offer. For example, a small community hospital may not be able to have an oncology program without this program. And it prevents those patients from having to travel great distances for that care, the specialized care that they need. So in a nutshell, it just really helps these people that are struggling to keep their doors open. Honestly, some of them will tell you that if it wasn't for this program, not only would they have to limit services they currently provide, but it may in fact have an impact on their ability to stay open. It's certainly the lifeblood, Sherry, and has become, I think, the lifeblood for a number of providers out there that have been eligible and have been participating in the 340B program for the last 30 plus years. So Sherry, you mentioned DISH hospitals. I know what that means. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Certainly. So a disproportionate share hospital, there are certain qualifications depending on the type of registration or the type of entity that you are with HRSA within the 340B program. And so if you are categorized as a DISH hospital, of course, that's a CMS designation, but there's a certain percentage you have to meet on your Medicare cost report annually. And depending on that percentage will dictate what your opportunity may be. So a DISH hospital has to have a DISH percentage greater than 11.75% on their most recently filed Medicare cost report. They do have to be not-for-profit. That is one of the main stipulations as well. And then there's different types of control involved here. So it can be standalone, not-for-profit hospitals. It can be government-owned, or they can be granted governmental powers. And depending on that type of ownership will also dictate other elements of the program. The sole community and rural referral centers have a lower threshold. They do have to meet the greater than 8% 
on that same calculation. Critical access hospitals don't have a requirement with the DISH percentage. They simply are able to be in the program if they're a not-for-profit critical access hospital. They can elect to be in the program if they so choose. So it's really disproportionate share. Sure. You're taking care of more of those patients, right, that don't have the financial means that maybe others do. So it's an annual calculation, though, right, Sherry? So the 11.75% is an annual calculation based on the Medicare cost report. So you could be a provider that's eligible today, and then next year at this time, you're no longer eligible because your DISH percentage has come down. Yes. And the minute they file that cost report, they have to cease purchasing 340B drugs if they fall out of the program. So it's very important. And I know that the DISH calculation, it's 11.75%. We make it seem like it's a simple calculation. Just go out and grab this number from your system and divide it by this number and see if it's, if there, there's a heck of a lot more to it than that, right? Can you give a little more background on the actual calculation itself and how important it is for providers to ensure, number one, the accuracy of the number from a compliance perspective, but also to make sure that they're capturing all of those Medicaid days, you know, the Medicare SSI days in their calculation to ensure that they either maintain their eligibility or maybe can participate in the program for the first time. Sure. And it does have an SSI component to it. Even though it is an outpatient program, there are inpatient numbers that come into play with that calculation. Most of our covered entities do monitor this throughout the year. And if they see that that number may be dipping in a fearful manner of you know, maybe we're going to fall out of the program. They do often enlist help from those who do work on their Medicare cost report to make sure they're counting their days in the appropriate bucket. You mentioned the public health emergency, and that did impact a number of our clients negatively because of things, for an example. So we had nursing home patients who would come in to the hospital and then the nursing home wouldn't take them back. And so they would have extended lengths of stay, which negatively impacted the calculation for the dish percentage. And so there had to be some concessions made for hospitals that would have fallen out of the program that they were allowed to stay in for that year. There is no indication that they would continue to do that, even though right now some of the calculations are based upon during the time that public health emergency was still in effect. We would often encourage those, if you're unsure about where you're counting certain visits, that you enlist help from those who are assisting with filing that Medicare cost report. And we do actually, as you know, Sherry, Baker Tilly does quite a bit of that work for our clients. We do a lot of reimbursement work. So we do the the dish scrubs, if you will, right? To make sure those days are captured in the right bucket. And, And again, to make sure you're, again, if you're eligible for the program, you want to participate. But if you're participating in the program, you better darn well sure that you're eligible to participate from a compliance perspective, right? And so so I think that's a good way to pivot then to our next topic because you mentioned in some of the other comments about oversight and rules, et cetera. So there is a pretty significant compliance component to participating in the 340B program. So a typical healthcare provider, Sherry, as you know, all sorts of laws and regulations that they need to comply with on a daily basis. You know, those 340B eligible providers now have another layer of compliance that they need to worry about. So can you talk about some of the compliance requirements, Sherry, maybe some of the best practices relative to compliance? Because I believe substantially all healthcare providers across this country want to do the right thing on the compliance side of the business, right? I mean, everybody wants to comply with all the laws and regulations that they need to comply with. But those laws and regulations are complex. I mean, compliance is not an easy thing. So talk a bit about compliance, if you would. 
Sure, absolutely. Being in the program, you have to annually recertify and provide evidence in many cases that you do still qualify from just what we've already discussed. Now, beyond that, it's important to know that annually HRSA selects around 200 covered entities to come on site and do a deeper dive into the program to ensure that everything that they are counting as 340B eligible should in fact have been counted as 340B. So internally, what we often find is that, to your point, everyone we come in contact is hoping that they're doing the right thing. It's just often what they don't, they don't know what they don't know. And so the educational piece is really important and it's really critical if someone's considering getting into the program that they educate themselves prior to that. But once in the program, the key element is auditable records. And so what you want to have in place is an internal quality assurance plan in terms of auditing your own program, both in what we call the mixed use setting or drugs that you're using as part of visits, whether that's in a clinic setting or in the hospital of everything that that covered entity owns and that's on a reimbursable outpatient line of their cost report. They also would be expected to have an annual independent audit of their program. And the best practice is to have a 340B oversight committee. And so we often see that that only meets quarterly. Everyone's uh, meeting doubt, (laughs) so to speak. And so attributing proper resources to the program to make sure that someone has oversight into all of the different areas you've elected to use 340B. And that includes auditing the software company that you choose to use as well. And so I feel like it's a language of its own. And so sometimes just learning to speak the 340B language is a foundational missing piece. And so again, figuring out where you can get the best information and making sure that you understand what you've signed up for, number one. Second to that is understanding contracts that you're signing. So many times we send contracts to legal for approval. And of course, they're looking for out clauses and things like that. But you really need someone who speaks the language and understands what are you agreeing to in terms of, for example, a contract pharmacy arrangement and what you're going to be charged for the dispensing fee structure, as well as the TPA. So third-party administrator simply means the 340B software company you're electing to partner with. So it's endless complexity, and you can get into the weeds really quickly as far as what all scrutiny is required to feel like you have a compliant program. Sure. And you mentioned annual independent audit, Sherry. So when you said that, I perked up a little bit because we do a lot of that at Baker. I grew up in the audit side of our practice. So I'm involved with the annual audits of financial statements for a number of our healthcare provider clients. But clearly this audit, this independent audit is different. It's a compliance audit. Yes. And the ideal thing is to have someone mimic a HRSA audit. So what you would like to do is practice what it would be like if you were one of those 200 selected for a HRSA audit. And so that for me, should begin with notification and the timelines that you would be expected to provide the data, what it would look like when they came on site, the data elements you would be required to show them in terms of everything you counted as 340B, and be prepared to speak of how you use the program and how you use the savings. Even though there's not a requirement today to account for every penny of the savings and revenue generated from the program, that's probably coming. But today, the hospitals more broadly are supposed to be able to speak to how they use those monies within the intent of the program to benefit their patients and their community. Got it. There's always that accountability 
piece or managing that or government, right? Ratcheting up the level of accountability on healthcare providers for a whole host of different things. So Sherry, on the compliance front, just one more follow-up question on compliance. Pharmaceutical inventory, drug inventory, can you talk a little bit about that? And maybe you're going to say, well, market, there really is no difference. But from a 340B provider, they have to handle the 340B purchases of pharmaceuticals separately and track them. And that's probably part of the overall compliance process as well. Absolutely. And there are a couple of different ways to do that. And some smaller hospitals simply can't afford the complex softwares available out there to help them manage the program. So that being said, there is more of a physical inventory component to it. And that requires a lot of oversight and a lot of tracking. There are those TPAs that I mentioned who will provide those services and track virtually everything that you're counting as 340B. And really 340B is about a replenishment model. So you're using what's on your shelf from the outs, you know, for when you first qualify for the program, and it's really the price you're paying to put those packages back on your shelf, that they calculate whether or not each time something is administered, these software companies are doing the testing. So is this an outpatient? Is it in a qualified area? What is their insurance coverage? Because you do have options in terms of Medicaid. So you can choose to carve in your fee-for-service Medicaid, or you can carve out in terms of those patients in what they call physician-administered meds, or in simplistic terms, some med that's provided as part of a visit. So whether that's a hospitalization and you happen to be an outpatient at that time, or in a clinic setting, as long as you're an outpatient, those drugs can count for the most part. The minute you become an inpatient, you can no longer count three, you know, those meds for 340B purposes. In the contract pharmacy space, though, you have to carve out your Medicaid fee-for-service population. So there's so many complex pieces to this that it's best practice to provide the different files. So you're talking EDT files and counter files, and you have to prove that you're responsible for the care of these patients. So it's really beneficial to have a company on your side that's doing all this virtually behind the scenes. But as I mentioned, there are some hospitals that are just small. They simply can't absorb those costs, at least initially. And so they're trying to manage it in a very manual way. And to your point, and back to my point of auditable records, you just have to be able to speak to your inventory, how you manage that. Is it a physical inventory? Is it a virtual inventory? And how are you ensuring that you're not using 340B drugs for ineligible patients? Okay. So I guess the summary of all that is there's a lot to compliance. Absolutely. (laughs) A lot of policies, procedures, oversight that providers that participate in the 340B program need to pay attention to for sure. So Sherry, just going back to something you said earlier, in the 340B program overall, we've got the cost savings side of it on the procurement of the pharmaceuticals for the eligible providers. And then we also have the contract pharmacy piece where there's a financial benefit to the providers there too, through these contract pharmacy arrangements. Those are the two maybe primary things, but is there a typical hospital or typical provider that's eligible, is there a percentage there that overall benefit that maybe a provider gets is 80% cost savings, 20% contract pharmacy, or you're probably going to tell me, Sherry, that it just depends. The answer depends. That's the common response to everything. (laughs) I would think the biggest key element in terms of the contract pharmacy opportunity is whether or not the covered entity owns their family care providers or their internal medicine. Those folks that are going to be seeing patients ongoing Because the responsibility of care is one of the key elements in terms of capturing eligible prescriptions that you can then 
get the revenue from. And so a hospital who owns their providers, their offices are under the hospital's tax ID on a reimbursable outpatient line. They have far greater opportunity in the contract pharmacy space than those who potentially have a lot of standalone practices or privately owned practices that are not part of the hospital, because then it's a different discussion at that point. And so it depends. It really depends on what they have, what services they have, what they own or don't own, and, and even internally. So if they have infusion versus just some places are small, they only have emergency department opportunity, or their culture is one of either trying to get anyone categorized as an inpatient as quickly as possible versus a lot of observation status patients, which would qualify for 340B drugs. Sure. So there's a lot to it. Every situation's different. But again, there certainly are significant benefits to providers that are eligible. So Sherry, you mentioned regulatory oversight. You mentioned HRSA does approximately 200 audits annually. And for providers that participate, it's it's not a matter of if they'll be audited. It's likely when they're going to be audited. Is there anything else on the regulatory oversight side of things relative to HRSA that you want to share with our audience? Or is it really those audits that HRSA does? That's the primary way that HRSA executes their regulatory oversight. And that is what HRSA does. You do have the exposure to manufacturer audits. Often those, well, they have to be presented as a good faith inquiry in the beginning. And there are certain pieces that can be a red flag to them. There are organizations who have put themselves out there to be a middleman almost. You get a request randomly for you to do a lot of homework. Here's a bunch of claims. You need to tell me if you purchase these drugs at 340B. And if you have, then that organization will, in my mind, sell that information to the manufacturers. And so you do want to make sure that you don't have what's called a duplicate discount. So when I mentioned you have the options with Medicaid, if you choose to carve in Medicaid for your what's called physician-administered drugs or those things in-house, you have to make sure that your state is not also collecting a rebate on those same drugs. And even though it may be less transparent than you would like of whether they are billing quarterly those manufacturers for the rebates, it still falls to the covered entity in terms of making sure that doesn't happen. So each state has its own requirements. So for example, one state may say, well, if you buy the drug at 340B, you have to put a specific modifier on the claim and you have to bill us at actual acquisition costs because we're losing money here. You know, we can't afford the hit that we can't collect these rebates. So you do have the exposure or the potential exposure for manufacturer audits as well. Well, I learn on these podcasts every time I do one, Sherry, my guests educate me on the topics we discuss. And so today is no different. A lot of moving parts with 340B. So Sherry, let's then move on or pivot to strategies. You know, if there are any, I would imagine there are some strategies that are being discussed, deployed by healthcare providers relative to you know, I'll just say leveraging the benefits under 340B, right? I mean, there's, you know, the programs there for providers to utilize. And so what are some of those those strategies? And I guess, Sherry, maybe break it down. I guess if you have a provider today that's not eligible, that's borderline, they're close to the 11.75%, you know, the dish percentage, but they're not quite there. Is there a strategy for that provider to do something to become eligible down the road? And even the providers that are eligible you know, what strategies are they deploying to further leverage the, the benefits? Well, there's certain services that lend themselves to a higher dish percentage. Some of those are pediatrics, women's health services, and often the accounting firms, again, like your health, can provide guidance in terms of what will be beneficial to them in terms of that calculation. 
strategies in general for those already in the program, you're seeing more and more uh, contemplate having an entity-owned retail pharmacy. If you are in the program, then you're probably very well aware that there are now 23 manufacturers who are restricting the 340B program in the contract pharmacy space. And that being said, hospitals are hurting compared to what they were able to capture on the revenue side. And if you have an entity-owned pharmacy that's fully owned and on your cost report, those restrictions are not applicable. So if a facility can drive the business to their own pharmacy and they make it convenient for the patient, so some considerations are drive through windows, mail order, deliveries to the home, there is a shift in what we're seeing even in smaller organizations who historically did not want to take on you know, the inventory cost or the labor cost. Many of them are now strongly considering an entity-owned retail pharmacy. The other thing is getting involved at their legislation, getting the word out and educating those congressional members that, you know, 340B is important. There's a number of states who've enacted new laws that are protecting the covered entities from discrimination and reimbursement. So the PBMs were trying to cut reimbursement. So if they knew the drug was obtained at a cheaper cost, they felt they shouldn't reimburse them as much. But that completely goes against the intent of the program. If it becomes a pass-through, you don't have any additional revenue then to reinvest. So many hospitals are getting involved at that level, sponsoring bills, trying to provide education or at least examples of how they benefit their patients. So that is certainly a strategy in terms of keeping the program either where it is or going back to actually is what the goal is, going back to where it was. Really what you're saying there, I think, Sherry, is being your own advocate. I mean, you've got to be be your own advocate relative to some of these programs that you should rightfully participate in. Sherry, you said two interesting things there. Well, several interesting things, not just two, but you've talked about service lines and, and that is, you know, you mentioned the pediatric service line and, and service lines can have a significant impact on dish percentage. So that's certainly something that all providers should think about relative to 340B borderline eligibility, analyzing their service lines. I mean, we do a lot of work with our clients Sherry, you know, absent outside 340B on service line profitability and the value that each of their service lines are bringing to their system. But thinking about how they impact DISH is important here. And you talked about PBMs. I guess we could have a whole separate podcast on PBMs and their role in the whole pharmacy, pharmaceutical process. But that is unfortunate that PBMs would take that stance relative to reducing reimbursement. Just extension from that is just from a strategic planning it's really important to understand all the different parameters within the 340B program. There are a lot of timing events. So if you're going to add a service, it's important to know when you need to drop a charge by, when that needs to appear on your cost report. And that's something that we specialize in is educating covered entities in terms of how can they best help themselves. And so the first and foremost, again, understanding if you're going to contract with a pharmacy, don't just sign something that's presented to you in terms of just take it or leave it. There are discussions that can be had, not always successfully, but even understanding the terminology and going back to that part, it's one thing to understand the legal perspective, but it's a completely different discussion to say, okay, I understand my fees I'm going to be charged either from the pharmacy itself or the TPA I've selected. And so we actually do a boot camp. 
And so when we have covered entities who are actually terrified of having even a mock audit because they really don't understand that process, we do a blend. So we'll come on site and do the mock audit for them to teach them what it's like to be audited from HRSA. But it's really important to understand your own program. So sometimes covered entities have had turnover or they frankly didn't understand all the rules when they signed up. And so it helps them then for future planning to understand what timelines are involved here, what service lines can have a greater impact. But most importantly, do we understand all of the outgo here? So if you're going to be expected to talk about net benefit, you definitely need to understand the expense side of it as well. Great points, Sherry. Thank you for that. So Sherry, the last question I have for you, and it's more of a crystal ball type question, and you, and you talked about hospitals or healthcare providers being advocates for themselves, potentially getting involved with their legislators, talking about the benefits of the 340B program. And, and doing that, I, I would think, on a fairly consistent basis, because as we know, and as we've read about over the years, the 340B program has been threatened, right? And you also mentioned about how important this program is to a whole host of healthcare providers across the country. But if you got your crystal ball out, Sherry, you know what does the future hold for 340B from your perspective? I don't think it's going away. I think that there will be a lot of negotiating in terms of you're going to have to give something to get something back. So for example, those manufacturers who are restricting in contract pharmacy, they've been asking for additional claims level data. Uh, Hopefully they're using it for the right reasons, but I do believe there'll be requested additional transparency. So I did mention earlier that even though hospitals are today not required to account for their savings and revenue, at least down to the penny, that is coming. And I believe that Minnesota already put that in place that they, not to HRSA, but to the state, that they're going to have to start accounting for the differences in prices that they're paying, as well as you know, any benefits from the contract pharmacy side, their, their TPA expenses. So I think all of that is coming and preparing in advance is going to be pretty important. So I think there will be more scrutiny. I believe that Hearst is asking for additional funding to expand the number of audits that they're doing. So I just feel like it's going to be more important to make sure that you have all your ducks in a row and that you understand how you're operating the program and and precisely what benefits you are receiving from both the savings side as well as the revenue side, because you're going to have to provide that information. Sure. So the program likely, and again, we're just predicting, there's nothing we're saying with certainty here, Sherry, but the program likely not going away, but just like any federal program, you know, the, the Medicare rates get updated every year and there's certain tweaks to quality measures and things of that nature that that organizations have to comply with or that they're measured by on the quality of care standpoint. So we can continue to see tweaks to the program moving forward, which which certainly makes sense. Well, Sherry, I can't thank you enough for joining me. We appreciate the relationship that we have with you. We at Baker Tilly partner with Sherry and, and her team at 340B Compliance Partners to help add value to certain of our client relationships. And this partnership has worked really well for us, Sherry. And, and I think our our listeners certainly know, based on a lot of the commentary that you made, that you certainly know your stuff uh, relative to 340B and again, can ultimately help protect you know health care providers because the compliance side of it is really a lot of where you focus your time, right? So it's helping protect them. You know, it's a lot of what we do for our clients as well. Yes, absolutely. You want to advocate for yourself. So Sherry, again, thank you. Thank you to our listeners for joining this podcast. If you found this episode useful and would like to listen to more episodes about hot topics in the healthcare industry, please subscribe to our Healthy Outcomes podcast or learn more by visiting us at bakertilly.com. Thank you again, Sherry. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. To receive notifications when new episodes are available, please subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts. For additional resources, check out bakertilly.com.